Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Welcome to the True Crime Never Sleeps Podcast. I'm your host, Larry Elise. Today we continue our series, Shit Out of Luck. This week we dive in to the Oklahoma City bombing and Timothy McVeigh. First, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Pondex, for sponsoring this episode. You can check them out today at pondex.com. Use promo code Larry21 for 10% off your first purchase. Check them out today. It's promo code LARRY21 for 10% off your order. And now let's dive in, shall we? April 19th, 1995, 9.02 a.m. It was a normal Wednesday morning in downtown Oklahoma City. There were the routine comings and goings, such as people arriving for work or dropping their kids off at daycare. But that bustling normality was suddenly shattered by the sound of an explosion. Over a 16-block area, shattered glass rained down from more than 300 buildings and almost 100 cars that had been damaged or destroyed. But none were as damaged as the nine-story Alfred P. Murray Federal Building. The entire north half of the building had been sheared off by the blast. At 9.03 a.m., the first of over 1,800 911 calls related to the bombing began coming in. By that time, ambulances, police, and firefighters had heard the blast and were already headed to the scene to help. Within 23 minutes of the bombing, the State Emergency Operations Center was set up to organize the massive rescue and recovery efforts. Assisting them were federal agencies including the Air Force, the Civil Air Patrol, the Department of Civil Emergency Management, and the American Red Cross. First responders of all kinds began arriving from all over the country. In all, 168 people were killed, including 19 children who had been in America's Kids Daycare Center in the Murray Federal Building. In addition, 680 people were injured. The youngest victim was just six months old. The damage to buildings, cars, and other property was estimated at about $652 million. At first, many were quick to assume that the perpetrators had been Arab terrorists. This was not long after the first attack on the World Trade Center in 93, so the assumption was not entirely unfounded. Later, investigators would come to find out there wasn't indeed a connection to the World Trade Center bombing, but not in the way anyone could have predicted. Within an hour and a half, the perpetrator was in police custody for a traffic violation. At the time, no one knew that he was the one responsible for the worst domestic terrorist attack in U.S. history. To understand how someone could commit such a horrific act, we have to go deep into one of the most violent extremist subcultures in America, the anti-government gun rights movement. Since January 6, 2021, the American public has become a lot more familiar with them but they first emerged in the 1980s. Through their names and recruiting tactics have evolved over the years, they are essentially the same. Rapidly anti-government, anti-UN, pro-gun rights, and if you scratch the service, even lightly white supremacists as well. They believe in an assortment of paranoid conspiracy theories, all built on a foundation of apocalyptic beliefs. 
Most are convinced that one way or the other, the economic, governmental, and social systems of the U.S. will soon break or be torn down. As they used to say, this shit will hit the fan. Rather than trying to stop this eventual apocalypse, they actually welcome it, believing their superior survival skills and firepower will enable them to survive and even thrive in the ensuing chaos. Note, I do realize not all gun right advocates and survivalists are racist and violent, but there's too significant of an overlap to ignore. Every movement has to have an enemy, and their enemy then, as now, was the federal government, which they believe was coming to take their guns, and therefore their liberty, away. The only substantive change over the years is that these once fringe ideologies have since become the mainstream platform, thanks to extremist propaganda. But back to 1995, before the days of the internet, these groups spread their messages through various photocopied designs, NRA newsletters, and slick magazines like Soldier of Fortune and Guns and Ammo. AM talk radio hosts and angry tabloid editorials reached millions across the country, ranting against both real and imagined government overreach. At gun shows, militia camps, and NRA meetings, rabid Second Amendment believers networked, passed along propaganda and traded in weapons of all kinds. They held a passionate belief that any weapon should be legal for anyone to own, including bombs. While making information and instructions, both verbal and written, were often circulated and discussed among these groups. Now let's dive into the shocking radicalization of Timothy McVeigh. At first, Timothy McVeigh didn't seem like the type to fall in with such a crowd. Born in 1968 to a hard-working Catholic family in Pendleton in upstate New York State, McVeigh was an outgoing smart kid. While he was sometimes ribbed for being so tall and skinny, he had plenty of friends. His house, with its pool parties in the summer and haunted houses in the fall, was the hub of the neighborhood youth scene. But certain events were to set McVeigh on a very dark path. The first was the divorce of his parents. His two sisters went to live with their mother while McVeigh was to stay with his father. Undoubtedly reeling emotional from the breakup of his once close family, the trauma was com compounded by the fact that he was left alone most of the time. The quiet rural town of Pendleton had nothing to do, leaving McVeigh bored and restless. He was, however, very close with his grandfather. It was he who taught him his love of guns while taking him out shooting. His grandfather even bought him his first gun. The second catalyst came, as so many important ones do, in the form of a novel. When he was 14, McVeigh picked up the Turner Diaries a work of neo-Nazi propaganda about a race war that results in a justified genocide of non-whites. The book became his Bible. He would keep a copy of it with him for years, rereading it over and over for inspiration, and carrying pages from it within with him to commit the worst terrorist attack in U.S. history. As a gun enthusiast, he was most certainly exposed to the militia movement's anti-government. By high school, it had worked. McVeigh became increasingly paranoid that the government was on the verge of taking away his beloved guns. By 1988, he was growing restless at a job in small-town Pendleton General, so on the advice of a friend of his father, he enlisted in the army. Now to explain to those who don't understand why a self-avowed anti-government activist would willingly sign up to become property of said movement or government, you must understand that for most of the militia, the military is somehow exempt from their conception of the government, and many members are current or former military. In fact, the army 
and McVeigh were a good fit. McVeigh was an exemplary soldier and a dead-eye aim. He immediately made many friends, including Terry Nichols and Michael Fortier, fellow anti-government rights activists. Then in January 1991, he deployed to the first battle in the Persian Gulf War. In fact, his unit was in the first wave of troops to roll into Kuwait. In that battle, as an expert gunner on a Bradley fighting vehicle, he blew off an Iraqi soldier's head with a cannon. His fellow soldiers remember him as being one of the most gung-ho fighters eager to kill, blasting heavy metal to amp himself and his fellow troops up for the battle. His unit was responsible for killing over 650 the first day of fighting alone. He would go on to earn the Bronze Star for bravery. But, in letters back home, he would say that the death and suffering he'd witnessed had affected him deeply. When he came back from the Gulf, he was invited to try out for the Special Forces. He initially jumped at the chance, but ended up dropping out after only two days. He left the honor Army with an honorable discharge in 91. After that, he continued his vagabonding with his old Army buddy Nichols. They followed the gun show circuit and preached the evils of government. They also spent time in Nichols' brother's farm in Michigan, and McVeigh would bounce between the farm and Fortier's home in King's, Kingman, Arizona, where he was introduced to methamphetamines. The three began using meth and LSD heavily and often. Then two tragedies occurred that further enraged and radicalized McVeigh. These were the sieges at Ruby Ridge in 92, and a year later in Waco, Texas. Both were sieges that had ended in mass killings committed by the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms against people who were accused of weapons charges but who had refused to surrender to the authorities. But the final straw was when President Clinton signed into law the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, aka the Assault Weapons Ban. In their minds, this was the final straw of government overreach and tyranny. McVeigh believed he had to strike back. At that point, the three began reaching out to other anti-government gun right groups. Fortier had ties to militia groups near his home in Arizona. McVeigh and Nichols attended some Michigan militia meetings, but according to that group, were asked to leave because of their violent rhetoric. They also began visiting Elohim City, a white supremacist compound in eastern Oklahoma, and frequent hosts of the Aryan Republican Army. There, they would not be ousted for their violent views. And so, they begin the plan. Stewing in anti-government rage, surrounded by a violent echo chamber of white supremacy, and possibly fried out of their brains on meth and LSD, McVeigh and Nichols began to form a plan. <clears throat> they began stockpiling fertilizer, and other bomb-making ingredients, and storing them in a rented shed near Nichols' home in Junction City, Kansas. The two began making and testing explosives on Nichols' brother's farm. At first, McVeigh's plan was much more strategic. He wanted to assassinate specific political targets, including Attorney General Janet Reno and one of the law enforcement officers who killed the Weaver family at Ruby Ridge. But it quickly became apparent that this would not be possible. The intended targets had enough security that no one could effectively reach them. So instead, he turned to radical Islamic terrorist techniques for inspiration. He was impressed by the effectiveness of the recent World Trade Center bombing. He became obsessed with it, using it as a template for his own plan. 
He also drew inspiration from a scene in the Turner Diaries where the protagonist pulled a truck full of explosives up to a federal building and then detonated it. In December 1994, the plan was nearing completion, but they still had not decided on a target. McVeigh would later say his criterion was that the target should house at least two of the three federal law enforcement agencies, BATF, FBI, or DEA. He considered the presence of additional agencies as a bonus. Near Christmas, McVeigh and Fortier drove to Dallas to purchase more bomb-making materials, and on the way back, they stopped in Oklahoma City. This was probably where McVeigh made his decision. The Murray Federal Building housed no less than 14 federal agencies, including the DEA, ATF, Social Security Administration, and recruiting offices for the Army and Marine Corps. It had been the target of a previous bombing attempt in 1983 when the white supremacist group The Covenant, The Sword, and The Arm of the Lord had plotted to park a van or trailer in front of it and blow it up. McVeigh and Fortier, acting as tourists, toured the Murray Federal Building, starting with the daycare. For months, McVeigh remained isolated, flying under the radar. Then, on April 14, 1995, McVeigh put his plan into motion. He rented a motel room in Junction City, then rented a moving truck from Ryder under the alias Robert Kling, using a fake ID supplied by Fortier's wife. On April 16th, he drove to Oklahoma City with Nichols. McVeigh parked his getaway car, a yellow 1977 Mercury Marquis, several blocks away from the Murray Federal Building. After removing the license plate from the Mercury, McVeigh left a note covering the VIN that read, Not abandoned. Please do not tow. We'll move by April 23rd. Needs battery and cable. Both men then returned to Kansas. On April 17th and 18th, McVeigh and Nichols retrieved the bomb supplies from their storage unit and loaded them into the Ryder rental truck. They then drove to Gary Lake State Park where as the sun rose, they nailed boards onto the floor of the truck to hold the filled barrels in place. They then mixed the chemicals using plastic buckets and a bathroom scale. Each of the 13 bar barrels, when filled with explosives, weighed nearly 500 pounds. McVeigh arranged the barrels and filled the side panel of the truck with bags of fertilizer in order to direct the blast towards the building. He then, dri <coughs> then drilled through the truck's floorboards and body to insert a dual-fuse ignition system, one at 5 minutes and one at 2 minutes, accessible from the truck's cab. McVeigh added more explosives to the driver's side of the cargo bay so he could ignite them at close range with his pistol in case the primary fuses failed and kill himself in the process. After finishing the truck bomb, the two separated. Nichols returned home. McVeigh, driving the loaded rider truck, returned to his motel room in Junction City. The next day was April 19th, a date that was, and it still is, of special significance in gun rights circles, called Patriot's Day. It was the date of the Battle of Lexington, and in 1995, the second anniversary of the massacre in Waco. This particular April 19th was the day that Richard Snell, one of the founders of the Covenant, Sword, and Army of the Lord, would be executed for murder. At 8.57 a.m., a security camera recorded the rider truck heading towards the Federal Building. At that exact moment, McVeigh lit the five-minute fuse. Three minutes later, now a block away from his target, he lit the two-minute fuse, parked the rider truck in a drop-off zone into the daycare center, then hurried away to his getaway vehicle. 
At 9.02 a.m., the Ryder truck containing over 4,800 pounds of explosives detonated. And before we continue our discussion, we'd like to mention our sponsor, Poddex. Poddex are unique interview questions and episode starting prompts in the palm of your hand. So whether you're a new podcaster or existing broadcaster looking to grow your audience or get more engagement, you're going to want to check out poddex.com. And again, use code Larry21 for 10% off your first order. And now let's get back into it. And now we've reached the end, drawing near for Mr. Timothy McVeigh. An hour and a half later, about 65 miles north of Oklahoma City on I-35, Near the town of Perry, Oklahoma, state trooper Charlie Hanger had heard about the bombing over his radio and observed other law enforcement vehicles headed that way. But there was no named suspect or even a description as he was watching for speeders. He spotted a yellow 1977 Mercury Marquis without a license plate. When he pulled it over, he noticed the driver had a suspicious bulge under his jacket which turned out to be a concealed weapon loaded with illegal armor-piercing bullets. Hanger arrested McVeigh, who gave his real name on charges of driving without a license and illegally concealing a weapon. Once McVeigh was in custody at the local jail, Hanger searched his patrol car for any evidence that McVeigh might have left. Indeed, he found a business card for a Michigan military surplus store hastily hidden in the seat, written on the back said TNT, $5 a stick, need more. Meanwhile, back in Oklahoma City, the FBI was investigating the bombing. The investigation, codenamed OK Bomb, included 900 federal, state, and local law enforcement personnel, the largest criminal task force since the investigation in the assassination of JFK. It was also the largest criminal case in American history. At the bomb site, investigators found two crucial pieces of evidence. The VIN number from an axle of the Ryder truck, along with the remnants of his license plate. These were used to link the truck to the specific Ryder rental agency in Junction City. The owner of that office was able to help FBI agents create a sketch of the suspect. McVeigh was also identified by the owner of the motel where he had been staying, and had signed in under his real name. The owner also remembered McVeigh parking a large yellow Ryder truck in the lot. Further investigation led them to McVeigh's father's house where they tapped the phone. From information obtained from those captured conversations along with the address McVeigh had been using, investigators were led to the Nichols brothers. Once Terry Nichols learned he was wanted, he turned himself in. Investigators searched Nichols' home where they discovered ammonium nitrate and blasting caps. The electric drill used to drill at the locks at the quarry had stolen explosives from. Books on bomb making, a copy by Hunter by William Pierce, the author of the Turner Diaries, and a hand-drawn map of downtown Oklahoma City with marks at the Murray Building and the spot where McVeigh's getaway car was hidden. On April 21st, back in Perry, McVeigh was taken to court on gun charges. Just as he was about to sign the paperwork to be released on bail, an FBI dispatcher called Hanger, asking him if they still had Timothy McVeigh in their custody. When Hanger said they did, the FBI dispatcher told him, keep him there. Whatever you do, do not let him go. McVeigh was taken into custody by the FBI that day. 
As he walked out of the courthouse, he was surrounded by angry crowds shouting baby killer and murderer. And now, let's dive into the aftermath of the Oklahoma City bombing and the arrest of Timothy McVeigh. The investigation ended in separate trials for McVeigh, Nichols, and Fortier. The trials were moved to Denver as the defense argued there could be the three could not obtain a fair trial in Oklahoma. Opening statements in McVeigh's trial began on April 24, 1997. He initially tried the imminent danger defense, arguing he was in imminent danger of the government taking his rights away. However, his lawyers thought it would be better to paint the bombing as an act by a larger conspiracy, with McVeigh only the designated patsy. The jury didn't buy it. They deliberated for 23 hours, and on June 2, 1997, McVeigh was found guilty on 11 counts of murder and conspiracy. He was sentenced to death. While in Colorado's federal supermax prison, McVeigh resided in what's been called Bomber's Row, with the likes of Ted Kaczynski and Ramsey Youssef. McVeigh and Kaczynski, unsurprisingly, grew quite close. While he was incarcerated, McVeigh also continued his anti-government crusade, often writing for the right-wing conspiracy magazine, Media Bypass. On June 11, 2001, he was executed by lethal injection at the Federal Correctional Complex in Terre Haute, Indiana, the first federal execution in 38 years. So many people wanted to see McVeigh's death that a lottery was held for seats to witness the execution, which was also broadcast on closed-circuit television. However, none of his family were present at his request. Nichols stood trial twice, first by the federal government in 97, being found guilty of eight counts of involuntary manslaughter of federal officers and conspiring to build a weapon of mass destruction. He was sentenced to life without parole. Then in 2001, the state of Oklahoma sought a death penalty conviction on 161 counts of first-degree murder. On May 26, 2004, the jury found him guilty on all charges, but deadlocked on the issue of sentencing him to death. In August of 2004, he was given the sentence of 161 consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole. He's currently serving his time in the Federal Supermax Prison near Florence, Colorado. As for Fortier, he and his wife were considered accomplices for their involvement in the bombing. In addition to helping they scout the federal building, Fortier also testified they had received stolen weapons that were sold to finance the bombing, shared money from their sale with McVeigh, handled blasting caps and other explosives, and had the same anti-government literature that McVeigh gave Nichols. Fortier reached a plea deal agreeing to testify against McVeigh and Nichols in exchange for a reduced sentence and immunity for Lori. On May 27, 1998, he was sentenced to 12 years in prison and fined $75,000 for failing to warn authorities about the attack. After serving over 10 years of his sentence, he was released for good behavior into the Witness Protection Program and given a new identity. That's actually one thing I learned after researching this case. I was surprised, but I guess people probably want to bring him harm, both um, families of the victims possibly, and also uh, militia members who feel like they he uh, betrayed McVeigh.
On May 23rd, 1995, a month after the bombing, the Murray Federal Building was demolished. For two years, the site was encircled by a security fence where thousands placed toys, flowers, poems, and other tokens of remembrance and sorrow. Another facet of the Oklahoma City bombing response was the push for even harsher punishments for those deemed terrorists, such as the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996, which seeks to deter terrorism, provide justice for victims, provide for an effective death penalty, and enhance penalties for terror-related crimes, and sought to streamline the federal appellate process for claims arising out of state criminal cases. In response to the trials of the conspirators being moved out of state, the Victim Elocution Clarification Act of 97 was signed into law to allow the victims of the bombing the right to observe trials and to offer impact testimony in sentencing hearings. And that is all we have for this episode of the True Crime Never Sleeps podcast. Let us know your thoughts on this case. Do you think everybody involved received a fair sentence let us know in the comment section below or you can send us a tweet at true crime ns thanks for watching and listening and if you're listening to this in the future thank you for listening and be sure to like and subscribe to our channel and we'll see you next time Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.